All right, open your Bibles if you would. Genesis chapter 36. It's actually a perfect place for us to end and, and begin our, our uh, Christmas series. So we'll pick this back up in chapter 37 next uh, in January. Genesis 36. Well, I was living in South Carolina, um, and God was preparing me for, for ministry. And I had just gotten out of the, out of the Navy, and, and I was working full-time as we were raising support to go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. And, uh, and my full-time job was, was setting mobile homes. Now, if anybody's ever set mobile homes before, this, that's a dirty, hot, difficult job to do. Um, and, and I did it probably for two years, I think it was. I uh, didn't like it at all. Uh, in fact, to say I hated it would probably be an understatement. Um, but I love what God did in me uh, there and, and taught me. Well, in this part of South Carolina, there's a lot of agricultural work that uh, goes on. And every year, uh, thousands upon thousands of Hispanic migrant workers uh, would spend months harvesting uh, tens of thousands of acres of crops. Well, one day I'd finished work. It was probably about 1.30 or 2, and and, and I was driving home, and uh, I'd been in the, the mud and the mire under a mobile home, and I went through a McDonald's drive-thru uh, to grab some lunch. Now, I had this truck, and Sherry named it Old Blue. I loved Old Blue. It was a 1970 Dodge Ram and had equal shades of blue and rust, and, um, but it was a work truck, and it served its purposes well. So I'm going through the drive-thru in Old Blue, and I'm all dirty and nasty, and I gave my order, and I pulled up to the window, and as I handed my, the, the, my money to the lady, she looked at me with this shocked look, and she said, wow, you speak pretty good English. <laughs> it completely caught me off guard, and, and I was offended, and I said, well, why wouldn't I? And then I looked down, and she's really embarrassed now, and and I looked in the mirror, and I thought, well, I look like a migrant worker coming off the fields. And it was a case of mistaken identity. I looked like someone that I was not. And when you look from the outside, there was really no difference from me and Old Blue and the migrant workers driving the farm trucks. Well, that's what Genesis 36 is all about today. It's mistaken identity. Now, if you've read ahead, you, you may be wondering what I wondered when I first read it. What in the world is God going to teach us in these 43 verses of genealogy? And if you've been here for a while, you know that, that there's no filler in Scripture. Uh, the genealogies in the Old Testament and, and even the New Testament are, are just as inspired uh, by God as the pastoral epistles are. Right? Both are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, I'll admit that the epistles are, are a lot easier to preach uh, than this genealogy is. Um, and, and so this is more of the meat of the word rather than the milk of the word. And so if we were to get a big picture here and say, well, what, is, what are these 43 verses about? Um, well, they're about Esau, and they tell us what happened to Esau. Remember Esau, he is the, the firstborn, the favorite son of Isaac, and then Esau sold his birthright for, for some red stew. 
And then when Isaac is, went to give him the, the blessing of the firstborn, uh, Jacob tricked him out of it, and Esau was really angry. He vowed to kill him, and, and Jacob went on the run for the next 20 years. But Jacob, he's the promised son. He's the son that the Messiah is going to come through. So you might say, well, Esau kind of got what he deserved, so why are we even worrying about Esau now? Like, why do we care what happened to Esau? Especially 43 verses would show us this really incredibly successful life that Esau had. Now, successful is in the worldly standards. But I think by the time we're done, we're going to see how how Esau founded a, a dynasty of a nation. He fathered rulers and kings. Esau was loaded. I mean, he had financial prosperity. He had beautiful women. He had a political power. The problem with Esau is that he failed miserably where it mattered most. He failed with God. And so the reminder in this, in this text is that for those of us who want to be like Esau because of what he had, that's mistaken identity. You do not want to be like Esau. In fact, chapter 36, you'll see that really shouts out to us as in spite of all that Esau has and all that he accomplished, you don't want to be like Esau. You don't want to be identified with him. And so chapter 36 is a real contrast between Jacob and Esau. Esau had the successful life, honestly, that we all want. In fact, we point our kids to Esau's life. Jacob, on the other hand, had what Esau didn't. He had God. Esau had the American dream. Okay, he didn't go from rags to riches. He went from cows to kingdoms. And to look at him and, and say that he had it all and I want those kinds of things, it's mistaken identity. You get to chapter 37 and, and the narrative switches from from Esau's riches to, to Jacob's sojournings. And so Esau has the stability that we all want. What did Jacob have? God's promises. And so these two brothers represent two different paths of life. Esau has the quick and, and visible success, all earthly. And Jacob's life from this point is, is a life of obedience. The results are eternal. The payoff is slow. And it's not as easily visible. Esau succeeded in the world in every way, but he failed with God. So he failed where it matters. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And so our text today, Genesis 36, I'm going to read the whole thing. I, I really contemplated whether I was going to do this or not. But we need to because of what it tells us. And, and so I didn't, you know, last time we read through a really difficult genealogy. I don't know if you remember or not, but I read half of it. And then we put the other half on the screen because you guys were laughing at me. And we made you guys recite it with me with the idea that when one member of the body suffers and the rest of the members need to suffer with it. And so I'm showing grace today. We're not doing that. And so if you hear me pronounce the same name in a different way, just know that was inspired by God. So, um, all right. So Genesis 36, and again, it's very important, and you'll see why we need the big picture. Okay, we need, we need to see these names uh, in here because they're going to help us to understand the big picture uh, before we can really dig in. All right, Genesis 36, uh, beginning in verse 1. 
It says, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Oholabama, the daughter of Ana, and the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel. And Oholabama bore Jeush and Jalem and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born of, to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For the property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir, Esau's Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's son, sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Reuel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Getam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath and Zerah, Shama, Mizah, those, these were the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Oholabama, the daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, and Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are Chief Timon, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gadam, Chief Amalek, these are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. Well, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholabama, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalem, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholabama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these, are the chief, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anah, and Dishan and Zezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin and Manahath and Ebal, Shepho, and Onim. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibion. These are the children of Ana, Dishon, and Oholabama, the daughter of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, and Hemdan, and Ishban, and Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, and Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aaron. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinabah. Then Bella died and Jobab, oh, I like Jobab, that's an easy one. 
Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah and Bozrah, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, and who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place, and the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matra, daughter of uh, Mezahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau, according to their families and their localities by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jeheth, Chief Ohalabama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession, 37.1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Okay, wasn't that fun? <laughs> I know we, we read passages like this and they, they seem monotonous, don't they? They seem irrelevant. Uh, and it can be frustrating to read names that you can't pronounce. The last time I, I preached through a genealogy, one of our church members uh, said, wow, that was so fascinating to see how much how much theology and how much meat and how much practical application there is in genealogies. And, and I was like, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that's, they're great. And the more you study it and the deeper you get in it, then the more you'll see. And, and I said, you, you, should, like, you should study genealogies. And, and his reply was this, no thanks. I'll just wait until you preach it and let you do the digging. If you were the original audience, you would not have been bored. If you were the original audience hearing this, you would have been amazed at how much God had blessed Esau. And you would have read this chapter and you would have seen greatness. And I know in first reading you're thinking, okay, so where does this go? Right? How does this work? And Moses knew that. And he added something in there as a warning to not be like Esau. Did you notice four times in there when Esau's name is mentioned, immediately before or after it says, Esau is Edom. This is the father of the Edomites. And four times, it's like, it's almost like it doesn't fit right, right? And so our first, our first uh, point here, if you're taking notes, is simply Esau is Edom. Okay, Esau is Edom. In verse one, what's it say? These are the records of the generation of Esau. And then in parentheses, what does it say? That is Edom. Verse 8, Esau is Edom. Verse 9, Esau is the father of the Edomites. Verse 43, Esau, oh, by the way, the father of the Edomites. And so the idea is don't be impressed with Esau. The last thing you would want to be is identified with Esau. Who's Esau? He's Edom. He's the father of the Edomites. Well, what happened to the Edomites? What, what was wrong with them? Obadiah 1, verse 1. And I can say for the record, 
first time I have ever read out of Obadiah in a sermon. So. Obadiah 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Okay, so we got information about Edom here. He says, we have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. And then he says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? So do you see who Edom is? Edomites were strong people. They were proud people. And their boast is, who's going to bring me down to the ground? Like, who's greater than me? It's almost like a Muhammad Ali, right? He being the greatest. Well, the answer is God will. God will bring you down, Edom. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud. Look at verse 4 of Obadiah 1. Therefore, you build high like the eagle... Though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so the Edomites, came from Esau, worshipped the pagan idols of their neighbors. The Edomites historically regularly attacked Israel. And so don't be impressed by what Esau has, because the last thing you want is to be identified with Edom. Does that make sense? Number two, Esau's big family. Esau's big family. Look at verse 2. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Ahalabama, the daughter of Ana, and the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite. So the first thing we see here is that Esau married two Canaanite women. Remember back in 26 when uh, that these, these two wives caused a lot of trouble to Isaac and Rebekah. Right? They were a pain in their necks. And so when Jacob, remember when he left home, they, they told him, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Marry somebody from our relatives, but do not marry a Canaanite woman. So when you get to verse 3, what you see is Esau marries a third wife named Basemath. Now, if marrying two Canaanite women wasn't bad enough, he marries the daughter of Ishmael. Now, now think about this link that he's just now created. Now you have a direct link between the Ishmaelites who were the unfavored son of Abraham, and the Edomites, who are the unfavored son of Isaac. Like, that can't be good. So Esau has at least three wives and five sons. And so he's got a big, happy family, but you don't want to be like Esau. Why? Because he's the father of the Edomites. And I think it's significant uh, in here that that there's no mention of Esau having barren wives. Remember, Abraham, he was the, the, son, the, the, the uh, original one that God gave the promise to, to, to have many descendants. But his wife, Sarah, remember, she was barren. Isaac was given the same promises that his dad was, but Rebekah, she couldn't conceive for over 20 years. And then Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, she was barren for a long time. And then there's Esau. Esau's wives born five sons, a number of daughters, doesn't even tell us how many daughters. And it doesn't sound like they have any trouble getting pregnant at all. So Esau's got this big family, but you don't want to be like Esau because he's an Edomite. So point number three is Esau's material prosperity. 
Okay, listen, Esau was loaded. He was rich. Rich in the world's eyes, but he had, he was, uh, he had great poverty spiritually. And so God's promises to him and to the nation were to, tied to the land of Canaan, right? Canaan was the promised land. But in Esau's mind, any land would do. He didn't need the promised land. Uh, and so he, he lived for himself. He didn't live for God. He had material prosperity, but he was spiritually bankrupt. Look at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all the goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his, the brother, his brother Jacob. Why? Well, because their property had become too great for them to live together and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir and then it adds again, Esau's Edom. Now to his credit, Esau wasn't greedy. Remember when he saw Jacob uh, about uh, after their 20 years apart, Jacob wanted to give him these gifts and everything else and he declined them. He's like, I got plenty. You know, keep your stuff, don't worry about me. And, and, and even here, what we see is his leaving is amicable. Nobody's mad at each other. Nobody drove the other person out. It seems to be what needed to happen. And so what we can tell is Esau was, was generous and he was also content. The problem is his contentment was not in God. His contentment was in his riches. But riches are so deceitful that you actually think that you don't need God. Well, that's Esau's case. Revelation 3, verse 17, it says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, when, when Jesus spoke about riches, he spoke about the deceitfulness of riches. And so when you read the scriptures, what you see is being poor is really difficult. Being rich may be harder. Spiritually speaking, being rich may be harder. It's easier to walk away from God when you're rich. It's easier to not be uh, committed to the things of God when you have prosperity. And that's what Esau does. He left Canaan. Well, what's the big deal if he leaves Canaan? Well, that's the promised land. And he went to the land of Seir, the hill country of Seir. And this is important. I, I thought, well, why is it even in here? Well, Seir is to the east of Canaan. Remember in Genesis, when you see people going east, okay, it's usually because they're going away from God. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden where the presence of God was, which way did they go? East. They went away from God. After Cain murdered Abel, he was exiled to the east. In Genesis 11, they get off the ark and the ark pictured Christ and, and they went east to the plains of Shinar. When Abraham gives Lot his choice of land, he chooses to go east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Ishmael, Abraham's son from Hagar, he went east away from his half-brother, who was, by the way, the promised son, Isaac. And when Jacob deceives his brother, he flees the promised land and goes east. Now, where's Esau going? East. But he's like, listen, I can take any land. Why? Because I have material prosperity. I have financial security. I've got enough wealth where I can settle anywhere that I want. And then you get to verse 9, and there's a bit of a switch. 
The, the first eight verses track Esau's direct descendants, and verse 9 begins to track his extended family, and then Moses just introduces us to them. And, and so I'll read a few of the names. In, in verse 9, he says, These are the records of the gener- generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country in Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Raul, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Getam, and Kenaz. We read through those names, and honestly, they mean nothing to us. Right? I mean, they're, they're not familiar. We didn't name our kids after these people. Like, there, there's nothing in here that's familiar to us. <clears throat> but they were the Kennedys and the Rockefellers of their day. These were the wealthy families. In the ancient world, these were the ones that everybody looked up to. They had power. They had riches. They had position. They had it all. You know the reason they looked so happy? Because they were happy. They, they had everything that they wanted. They had pursued and they had possessed treasure that, that is incredibly satisfying. The problem is it's just temporary. And so their power and their money and their fortitude and their courage and their military might means nothing when you're dead. None of that matters once you're dead. And then in verse 15, he starts talking about the chiefs. The chiefs is, the, and these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz. The firstborn of Esau are Chief Temen, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz. And, and, and so this, this word chiefs occurs 69 times in the Old Testament. The vast majority of them are found right here, Genesis 36. And so Esau, with these chiefs, chiefs, point number four, Esau has political power. Now these chiefs were like tribal chiefs. So maybe they may have had hundreds or thousands of people under their command. But they grow. In fact, when you get to verse 31, they're called kings. It's interesting because, remember, God had promised Jacob that kings would come from him. So Esau's sons were kings long before Jacob's sons were kings. Well, what were Jacob's sons? Well, Jacob's sons were a nation of slaves, while Esau's sons were kings. And it was Edom's kings who would have caused great trouble to Israel. I mean, frequent wars. They would, they would cheer on those who attacked God's people. Look what Psalm 137 says about it. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. In other words, shave it down, destroy it to its very foundation. So, so here's Edom. We don't want to be like Edom, right? Here's Edom. And, and what do they do historically? They are for the downfall of Israel. They are for the, the raising of Jerusalem. And so here we have Esau. This, he's an example of an outwardly good man who was successful in the world's perspective, but against God. And I think that's why we want, I wanted to look at the big picture of this to go, remember, this is Esau. And Esau is Edom, and you won't want, don't want to be like the Edomites. So point number five is Esau's famous victories. If, if you're voting on most popular person of the day, who do you think was most famous in their day, Esau or Jacob? Esau, by far. In fact, by the end of their lives, Jacob had about 70 descendants. 
and they're living under Pharaoh's umbrella. 400 years after that, Israel is a fledgling nation of slaves. And then they escaped from Egypt with no land of their own. What about Edom? Edom, at this point, was an established power. They were strong enough to, enough to refuse to allow Israel to pass over their land. So who would you want to be more like, Esau or Jacob? Esau. Verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anah and Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. So listen, these Horites, they're a, they're a tribe of people or a group of tribes who, uh, they inhabited the, the country of Seir until Edom gets there. When he gets there, when Esau's people gets there, they, they, they conquer them. And so this passage records eight kings in the cities over which they reigned. And it is interesting, and I, I don't see any explanation why this is, but not one Edomite king was su- succeeded by his son. Not sure why, it doesn't say. All it tells us is who the kings were and where they reigned. And again, if you were reading this back then, huge deal. Doesn't carry the same weight now. It's like if I asked who won the Super Bowl in 1974. Who had album of the year in 1985? Nobody cares. I don't even know. I didn't even look it up. Because nobody cares. Now, if I said 1972, Caleb Colucci would have stood up and said the Dolphins, but... (laughs) Right? Listen, it was big then. Nobody cares anymore. Same thing. Now, the verse in chapter 37, I read it intentionally... Because this, this one verse, this whole chapter, 36, is about Esau and his descendants. And then 37.1 switches the narrative. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And so what this verse does is, it, is it's a transition that brings us, it brings the narrative back to Jacob's family in the land of promise. In fact, the next threat to the promise are the events that lead to the captivity in Egypt. The next time we're in Genesis, we're going to start looking at the life of, of Joseph, Rachel's son. As for Esau, and as for the Edomites, they, they endured until the time of Christ when they were known as Eduamens, spelled I-D-U-M-E-A-N-S. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But they ruled over Israel even then when Christ was there through the Herods. They were Edomites. And the Edomites disappeared from history in A.D. 70. When Jerusalem was destroyed, you'll hear nothing else about the Edomites. And yet today, 2,000 years later, Israel's name is in the news every single day. So the Edomites were the envy of the world until they weren't. And they simply passed off the scene they were forgotten, and they were replaced. And, and I have to ask the question, like, if fame is so fleeting, why do we try so hard to get it? Why, why do we want to be recognized so bad? Why do we want the likes on Facebook or Instagram? 
or followers. So let's apply this passage. There's really a lot of ways to do it, and and I, I just put three on here. Number one, know who you want to please. Know who you want to please. Sadly, I I think we would all agree that the American dream is seen more clearly in Esau, who had all the world, uh, all that this world had to offer, right? We don't see the American dream in Jacob. Esau had the, the world's goods, Jacob had God's promises. Esau had the fame. Everything that the world would call good, Esau had it. He had the perfect life. Except we have these subtle reminders that Esau is Edom. I mean, we long to be influencers, which is an interesting word, isn't it? We long to be influencers. We want to influence the world. And I I think, man, you know, if if that's you, if that's your desire, just know to, to whom much is given, much is required. I like being pastor of a small church. I say small, the average church is 70. We're a little bit bigger than that. Can you imagine being a mega church? The responsibility that that would have? I like that I know most of the people here. I can't imagine. I had a good friend of mine. He, he, um, I called him one day. He's the pastor of a church up in South Carolina. And I said, you know, hey, how's it doing? Just checking in. And, and he said, man, I got this one church member shaking his head. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, poor thing. What's going on? And he said, and he was one of uh, President Trump's like inner circle guys. And he led him to Christ. And, and so this guy started going to his church, which is a country church. I mean, it's, it's out in the middle of Yemisee, Yemisee, South Carolina. So he, he's in this church and, and, and the church fit about 150 people or so. This guy starts coming. Well, he's a big influencer on President Trump's you know, inner circle. So he starts telling everybody. So he's got people flying into his church. And, and so now they go from a church of about 110, 120. Now they've got 300 people, but they don't have room for 300 people. And, he, and so he's complaining about this one church member who keeps bringing all these people into his church. And he said, because they're not committed to the church. They come because he's here. And so I asked him, it was probably a month ago. I said, whatever happened to, because I hadn't heard you talk about him. He said, oh, he got mad and left. And uh, I said, do the people still come? He said, nope, day after they left, he left. and never heard from him again. But what they were doing is like, okay, you need to get online. You need to, and they were, they were pushing his podcast and everything else. He had literally tens of thousands of people from a 70 a week to now 10,000 a week. And he's like, I am so glad they're gone. It's easier not to have all the influence. It's easier not to shepherd that many. And yet, it seems like we long for that. I love the saying, there are but two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. That's it, two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. That's the options. Jesus didn't leave an option for middle ground, did he? We're either for him or we're against him. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, how do I know if I'm saved? Do you keep his commandments? If you love me, you will. You will keep 
his commandments. And then right after that, what Jesus taught was that he's going to send his spirit so that his spirit will actually enable us to keep the commandments. And the very evidence of the spirit living in you is that you have a love for God that shows itself in a life that obeys and pleases God. Pleases God. 1 John 2, verse 4, he says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Who who are you seeking to please? And listen, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But there should be some type of, of, of sinless direction, right? You should be moving towards that. Like we're not going to be sinless, but there should be a desire to sin less. Does that make sense? Like do, do you seek to please him in obeying him? Are you walking in the same manner as he walked? And, and I heard Nicholas Ellen this week, and anybody knows him. Every time he speaks, there's just like a little thing. You go, wow, I will never forget that the rest of my life. But he was talking about a radio station that he says you will find in every home, in every city, in every nation, in every continent of the world. And you get a very clear signal, and it's called WIIFM. And he says, you heard of it, right? It's Esau's favorite station, and it's our station as well. WIIFM stands for what's in it for me. Who are you seeking to please? And if you're a Christian, there should be a genuine, genuine desire and effort to move away from what's in it for me to what will please God. We, we should spend consistent time in God's word and in prayer and in fellowship with God's people. But not because you have to. Don't you want to? And if you don't want to, there's something wrong. Why? Because there's just two choices on the shelf. You either please God or you please yourself. And so you need to know who you want to please. And in Esau's life, he lived for the temporal over the eternal because his heart was to please himself. So you need to know who you want to please. Number two, you need to know who you want to praise. In fact, I was going to put this as the first application point because I think this idea is at the heart of this chapter. Esau had a great family but you don't want to be like Esau. He's Edom. Esau had material prosperity, silly rich, but you don't want to be like Esau because he's Edom. So don't long for his money, don't long for his family, don't long for his fame, don't long for his political power, don't long for his victories. Why? Because he's Edom. So then what are the answers? Or what are the options? Jesus shared this, Mark 8, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, then he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So what does that mean? What does it mean to deny, to come after Christ? What does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean to follow him and lose our lives for his sake? I think it comes down to an issue of who you will please and who you will praise.
And so let me ask it this way, and this is where I thought, wow, this is, I hope you're as convicted as I was. If Esau's line is a line of worldly riches and kings, and Jacob's life line is a line of slaves and persecution, which one are you most preparing yourself for? If Esau's line is a line of worldly riches and kings, while Jacob's line is a line of slaves and persecution, which one are you preparing yourself for? Or let me ask it this way, which one are you preparing your kids for? I mean, when life isn't fair to your kids, do you, do you run by and coddle them? Or do your thoughts go to a sovereign God who's over all things? Or do you get angry when it happens to you? Or you get worried when it comes to you? Are you losing sleep over this? I mean, when it seems like the, the world is winning and God's people are losing, do you remember that, that, that this world as we know it, it's going to be over? And, and you and I, we will reign with, with Christ? I mean, do, do you realize that the likelihood of persecution is, is becoming more and more a reality? I mean, do you think that you're just going to automatically be ready because you've read your Bible a few times and you've been in church and you sing the songs? Let, let me just gently warn you, as I warned myself, if, if, if you're passionately pursuing the worldly successes of Esau and living a life of marginal Christianity, something's wrong. The, the most important thing that you can impart to your kids is not how to be great in this world, but how you can be less. And, and listen, you cannot impart what you do not possess. It, it's easy to encourage our kids to succeed in all the wrong ways. You can be the star athlete. You can, you can be the scholar. They, they may get into the best colleges and get the best jobs, but if they fail in, in who they please and, and who they give their praise to, then they have failed with God. And I would say as parents, that, that starts with us. We need to be whatever we want our kids to become. So where do you desire recognition from? If God were the only one pleased with your life, would you be okay with that? We, we live in a world that just worships fame. And I'm not talking about the world around us. I'm talking about the church. We worship fame. You know, let, let a famous person become Christ, a Christian and immediately they put them on the covers of all the Christian magazines and, and onto the, the television talk shows. And that person may be a baby in Christ. He doesn't know anything about the Bible. He's just now understanding about sanctified living and... <clears throat> But we listen to his every word as if he's a spiritual authority. It's like the guy who plays the role of Jesus on The Chosen. Suddenly he has been plastered all over everything as if he represents the Christian church. I, I don't know his spiritual health. I'm not making any claims at all. I do know that his job is to pretend to be Jesus. And if you go on YouTube and you type in the words, an interview with Jesus, you know what you're going to see? Him being interviewed. And if you turn on your television, there is no shortage of commercials with this guy making the sign of the cross like the Catholics do and being the expert in prayer. Why? Because he's really good at pretending to be Jesus on a television series, which, oh, by the way, is, is said to be rooted in Mormonism. So who are your heroes? Who gets your praise? And in this passage... 
Listen, if, we, if, we're, if we're just truthful, we'd rather be Esau. But Esau's worldly success and spiritual failure is evident. But we look at that and what, what we realize is that since God keeps his promises to his people like Jacob, then he's gonna keep his promises to me. And number three, know how much you're willing to pay. You know, there's a cost in pleasing and praising God exclusively. Paul told Timothy, whoever desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus dealt with this idea as well. Look at John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see, the call of the gospel is more than a call to believe. The call of the gospel is a call to follow. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. The call of the gospel is more than just to believe. The call of the gospel is a call to die. It's to die to our own sinful desires, to die to our own flesh. The, the old you is gone and, the, and, and there's a brand new you. And to be in Christ literally means that we, we die to ourselves and we live for him. I mean, even Jesus counted the cost, right? He, he said he endured, it's that, uh, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews said that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Who's the joy set before him? You are. He counted that cost. Now, now listen, in a replay of history, Esau's descendant, Herod. Herod was an Edomite. Three Herods were Edomites. They had power and they had fame and they faced Jacob's descendant, Jesus. He didn't even have a home or a place to lay his head. Herod the Great slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem, attempting to kill the newborn king of the Jews. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded and mocked Jesus prior to the crucifixion and did great persecution on the Christian church. And so when they face each other, Esau's descendant, Herod, Jacob's descendant, and Jesus, it sure seemed like God's side was not winning. Jacob's descendant went to the cross. Esau's descendant lived and relaxed in the luxurious palace. But God is the author of the final chapter of this history and the great and powerful Herod, like his ancestor Esau, was a successful man that went to hell. And Jesus Christ, this descendant of Jacob, was raised from the dead and is coming again to reign and to rule in power and in glory. And if you don't know him, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to trust in Christ alone. Commit your lives to following him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word and the practicality of it. Thank you for passages like this that really make us think about our relationship with you and, and the things that we are striving after. Thank you for the example that you've given us in Esau that you can have all the world's goods and be a 
utter failure in your eyes. And so, Father, I pray for our church. I pray that we wouldn't just be a group of people faking it, but that we would be committed to living for him and dying to ourselves, that we would live a life that follows him, that we would be among those who walk as he walked. So, Father, I pray for anybody in here this morning who may be struggling with that, their own salvation. I thank you that you made it so clear that Christ has paid the price that we deserved when he died for us in our place and that we might have eternal life by simply repenting of our sins and trusting in him. So we thank you and we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.